Well, good morning, everyone. Hey, I heard you. Thank you. It's great to be together again, and uh, in weather that is a little bit less uh, scorching than it seemed to be last week. Um, and so, I think that'll allow me an extra twenty or thirty minutes to uh, preach. So um, you laugh. The battery's going to run out. Yeah, the sound guy says the battery will certainly run out before that, so you're all safe. <laughs> Would you open your Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 8? Romans chapter 8 is where we are. And uh, I want to read to us our passage for today, which is going to be verses 1 through 11. Romans 8, 1 through 11. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Let's pray. Father, we come together before you this morning. We worship you. We declare that you alone are God. We declare that you are righteous and holy, eternal and unchanging. We worship you. We bow down to you and give you honor as our creator. And Father, we praise you for what this passage talks about, for what has been done for us in Christ. Father, we, we are astounded at your wisdom, at your beauty, at your goodness, at your mercy and grace towards us. We rejoice in Christ, and we rejoice in what He has done 
And we rejoice in this position that we have in Him, being reconciled to You. And Father, as we turn to this great passage this morning and we begin this great chapter, Father, I pray that You would help us to engage in what You have for us here. That we would think, that we would be guided by Your Word, that we would rejoice, that we would be lifted in our hearts to give you praise and worship for what we read here. So, Father, I pray that you would help us do that this morning. I pray that, that you would be honored, and I pray that we would be built up the way we're intended to be. I pray that we would be encouraged the way we're intended to be in this passage. So help us as we wrestle with these truths, as we wrestle with our own hearts, and what we feel... And what we read to be true in your word. Father, I pray that you, by your spirit, through the proclamation of your word, would be at work in us this morning. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, my daughter told me the other day that she actually got to turn the page in her Bible because we had covered enough ground finally. This is the second whole time she's been able to turn the page in her Bible. Well, it's a little bit like turning the page in our Bibles this morning. We come to Romans chapter 8 that has been um, named the, the, the Great Eight. Uh, one pastor calls it. It's some, some see it as the greatest chapter in all of the Bible. I don't know how you can make such a claim, but if it's possible to make such a claim, this one certainly is in the running for that. This chapter is fabulous. This chapter is glorious. There, there can be no higher pinnacle of comfort or of assurance than this passage right here. Romans chapter 8 is glorious. And it's glorious if you just open to Romans 8 and begin to read Romans 8. It's wonderful and it's glorious. But it is nothing compared to when you understand where we have come from. I used to uh, run a whole lot more than I do now, and I participated in a race uh, that was uh, like a, a whole day long. It was like 30 hours long, and you didn't run the whole time. But one leg that I ran took me up over the top of a mountain and down the other side. And, of course, I had my phone with me for music and whatnot. And I got to the top of this mountain after having climbed for miles and felt like days. I get to the top and I stop because, you know, I'm going to take a picture. It's not because I needed to catch my breath. <laughs> I stop because I'm going to take a picture of this glorious view from the top of the mountain. Right as, you, right as you peek it and go down the other side. And I took this picture and it was wonderful. It, it, was, it was a, a beautiful sight. And of course, now when I look at the picture, I think, it's mountains. Eh, we have mountains. Not a big deal. But when I remember what I had to go through to get to that place, when I remember the struggle of running those miles up that mountain, and I got to the top, it was fabulous. It was beautiful. And that's a little bit like what Romans 8 is for us. If we will remember what we have gone through to get to this point, if we will look back on and think about where Romans has brought us to this point, how it can be that these statements in this passage are true, 
having worked his way through all of the gospel logic in the first seven chapters and having dealt with the guilt and the depravity of all of mankind and having rooted justification by faith in the teaching of the Old Testament and having dealt with original sin that we inherit from Adam and from the sin that we commit in our own lives, even as Christians, having dealt with all of that, Paul brings us to the payoff. He brings us to this point where now we can understand it. Now we can realize just how beautiful the picture is. It's not just mountains. It's not just doctrinal truth. It's not just encouraging. It's glorious. And it's wonderful. And if after we go through this chapter, and we're not going to cover the whole chapter today, of course, but if after we go through this chapter, you're of the opinion that theology doesn't really matter, that theology doesn't really affect my heart, then, then either I've failed terribly, or you've not been paying attention. Because it is theology that has brought us to this point where we're going to be able to rejoice the way we're going to be able to rejoice in Romans chapter 8. We start our chapter with this first verse. That's an amazing verse. Romans 8.1 if you, if you don't memorize Scripture, start here. Start here. And memorize this. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That word condemnation, it's, it rattles around in my mind a lot. And maybe it's a part of conversation a lot, perhaps. We talk about biblical things, but in the Bible, that word condemnation only occurs three times. This word for condemnation only occurs three times. Right here in chapter 8 in verse 1, and twice in Romans 5. And so what that tells me is that there... This discussion, this understanding, the question of condemnation has been at the core of what Paul has been dealing with. He started off back in chapter 5 with talking about various themes related to condemnation and how our condemnation can be dealt with. And then he concludes that section by launching this chapter 8 with a discussion of condemnation. And so we want to look at that bad news, which is Adam's trespass brought condemnation. Which, of course, takes us back to chapter 5 and verses 16 and 18. But if we remember, I'm not going to go back and read chapter 5, verses 12 through the end of the chapter, but it should be emblazoned in your mind because it's been the foundation. It's been undergirding everything that Paul has been saying for the last several chapters. He said that sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. He said that many died through one man's trespass. And he said the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. And one trespass led to condemnation for all men. So he introduces the idea, this bad news that we have inherited sin from Adam. We inherit his guilt and we inherit his propensity to sin. So that we are born already with a, with a debt of guilt. 
before God for sin that we inherited. And the result of that debt for guilt is condemnation. We all inherit that because of one man's sin. And so that's bad news. That's at the heart of what he's been arguing. That's at the heart of the second half of chapter 5. And that is bad news. This condemnation is ours because of Adam's sin. But of course, he doesn't stop there. And even chapter 5 and verses 12 and following doesn't stop at that point. Doesn't stop with condemnation. In fact, he gives the good news there in summary form. That Christ's act of righteousness brings life. We inherit condemnation because of one sin, one act of unrighteousness, and we receive life because of Christ's one act of righteousness. We read back in chapter 5, the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. And those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. One act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. By one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. And so he gives us in summary form, back in chapter 5, the heart of this doctrine, that he's contrasting these two men, these two federal heads, of Adam and Christ. And, and that's not just an interesting topic. That's not just a theological point. He bases all of chapter 6 and chapter 7 and chapter 8 and on on those truths. And so he calls them to mind here. We heard the bad news and we heard the good news. And in light of those things, we have thirdly the result. There is no condemnation in Christ. After having argued from 5 and 6 and 7, he starts off chapter 8 by giving another summary. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For those who are in Christ, not for those outside of Christ, but for those who are in Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation. Even after Paul's cry, do you remember, you remember not long ago from chapter 7, Paul's cry realizing, as a Christian man, I still wrestle. Who will set me free from the body of this death? Even after that cry, maybe even especially after that cry, in his understanding of what's going on, we have this glorious statement that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Even though our flesh still wars against the Spirit and, and would win, would win us over if it could do that, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Could there be better news? I don't think there could be better news than that. But that raises the question, how can that possibly be the case? Really, no condemnation? I mean, I know my heart. And you know your heart. And you know your guilt. You know what you've done, what you've thought. You know the things that you should have done that you've avoided. You know your own heart. How can it be? How is it even possible for Paul to make such a bold statement that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ? Well, the next verses in our passage today are written to explain how that can be. And so we move on to the next couple of verses. Chapter 8, verses 2 through 4. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus 
from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So he's talking about the law and the Savior and the interaction of those two. He says, first of all, the law has a weak link. There is a weak link in the law. Paul has argued that the law is holy and it is spiritual and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The law is given by God. It's a representation of His character and it is good. And it is only good. There's a flaw in the system. The flaw is not in God's law. The flaw is in the system. The flaw is in you. The flaw is in your flesh. The flaw is in my flesh. I used to think when I was a young Christian that the reason we couldn't keep the law was because it was just too complex. That it was, there were just too many laws and they, they were somehow uh, working against one another or whatever and it would take a super genius or whatever to figure out how to get through that. I, I thought the law was rigged against us, like, like if you go to a carnival and you're playing one of those games and you're trying to win a teddy bear. Those games are designed not to be won, and it's a fluke when you do win them. They're rigged, and they're rigged against you, and I thought, well, the law must be rigged against us. But that's not true. The problem is not with the law. The problem is not that the law is too complex, too difficult, or it's tricky. The problem is that the law requires the obedience from my flesh that my flesh is simply unwilling to do. Obedience to the law, true obedience to the law, comes from the heart out of a desire, a pure and simple desire to glorify God and nothing else. And we simply won't do that. Our flesh won't do that. And so we are the problem. In order for us to keep the law, our flesh would have to play along, and our flesh will not play along in submission to God. So the law is weakened by the flesh and thus is unable either to justify us or to sanctify us. The law can't accomplish those things. But secondly, with what God has done, the law's requirements are met. The righteous requirement of the law is met in Christ. And first of all, the obedience that Christ gives, the the law requires that you obey it, that you obey it perfectly, that you obey it in every little bit of the law, and that you obey it from the heart. No one has ever done that except Jesus. And so we have the righteous requirement of the law being met in Jesus because He obeys perfectly, always, from the heart, obeys the law and completes that righteous requirement. But secondly, there's a requirement that the law has when we fail. 
when we disobey the law, when we break the law, there has to be punishment. There have to be consequences for breaking God's law. And of course, that's death. And so not only did Jesus fulfill the righteous requirement of the law in his obedience, in the things that he did in life, but he also went to the cross to pay the righteous penalty for the unrighteous. And so we see that the righteous requirement of the law is met in Christ, both in his active obedience here and what has been called his passive obedience, meaning he receives the judgment that you and I deserve. And so the righteous requirement of the law is met in Him. And what's the result? Well, the result is glorious. The result for you and me is that we are set free. We are set free. We are set free from the law of sin and death. We're set free from condemnation, the condemnation of sin that that we deserve. We are set free from the necessity to obey God's law in order to be acceptable to Him. We've been set free. The question is raised, for whom is this true? It's for us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Which is going to bring us to verses 5 through the end of our paragraph, 5 through 11. Uh, discussion here of the flesh and the spirit. So I read starting in verse 5 For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit of life... The Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So he's going to be contrasting here flesh and spirit. And initially, he gives a discussion of contrasting lifestyles. He's making a strong contrast between what between walking and living in the in the flesh versus walking and living according to the spirit. And I don't think we have to look too far to understand those contrary lists. He he gives a similar list, an explanation, a description of what it means to walk in the flesh versus what it means to walk in the spirit over in Galatians chapter 5 where we read this. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Ouch. 
And then he continues, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And so back in Romans 8, he's contrasting these two lifestyles, the lifestyle of the flesh and the lifestyle of the Spirit. And secondly, he's contrasting worldviews. Not just lifestyle, but worldviews, deeper than the lifestyle. The lifestyle is the things that work out. That stems from a worldview. And here I'm going to depart from the way the uh, ESV, which is what I'm reading, reads some of these words. The ESV says, to set the mind on. And I like what the, the NET, the, um, the New English Translation, how they do it. For those who live according to the flesh have their outlook shaped by the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit have their outlook shaped by the things of the Spirit. He's not, he's not saying, okay, you've been setting your mind on this, stop that. Instead, set your mind on this. That's not what he's describing. He's describing what is the case for the person who's in the flesh. That they have a fleshly worldview. They have a fleshly outlook. The person who is in the Spirit has a spiritual worldview, has a spiritual outlook. First, he discusses the outlook set on the flesh. This is the worldview of the flesh. And this is how that worldview thinks. That is, this is what the outlook is like for someone who is in the flesh. The world is all there is, and we should make the most of it. Take every advantage. The pleasure we experience now is of utmost priority because when we die, we won't have the same opportunities anymore. So maximize your pleasure now. We need to live this, this life to the fullest. We need to live for now. We need to buy more things. We need to do more things. We need to glorify and worship ourselves in new ways. This is the outlook of the flesh. It may acknowledge somewhere in the thinking that, yeah, heaven exists. Maybe God exists. But it's a long way off. And God is far away. And so I need to make the most of my time now. I need to make the most of every opportunity that I have now. makes more sense to invest in the here and now than it does to invest in some far-off, ethereal, distant kingdom of God in heaven. Those who live according to the flesh have their outlook shaped by the flesh. The outlook of the flesh is death. And this may describe some of you. As you think about your life and you think about your priorities, this may describe you. And Paul says this is a description of those who are in the flesh. 
But he's contrasting, and he's contrasting with those whose outlook is of the Spirit, who have a spiritual worldview, a spiritual outlook. It's entirely different. Their foundational word is not now. Their foundational word is not me, but Christ and His kingdom is their foundational term. The person with this outlook with his outlook set on the things of the Spirit, doesn't seek to serve himself when he seeks to serve Christ. He looks to obey Him. He looks to honor Him in his life. He values Christ and obedience to Him more than he values his own pleasure. He wants Christ to be honored more than he himself wants to be honored. He seeks to promote Christ and to promote the kingdom of Christ more than he seeks to promote his own image or reputation. There couldn't be a greater contrast than there is between the worldview of the person who is in the flesh and the worldview of the person who is in the spirit. But remember, this is intended to be a description, a description of these people, of these two categories. It's not intended for us to to take it as instruction for how we ought to begin to do something. It's not an exhortation primarily. There might be exhortation that comes from it, but Paul is describing a Christian and describing a non-Christian in these terms. The Christian simply has a different mindset than the non-Christian does. Of course, Christians may very well struggle with inconsistency in their outlook. It's, it's part of our sanctification process. It's a key part of our sanctification process. But at the end of the day, the Christian has the outlook of the Spirit. And that mindset, that outlook, shows itself in greatly contrasting qualities. Again, I'm reading from the NET. For the outlook of the flesh is death, but the outlook of the Spirit is life and peace, because the outlook of the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to the law of God, nor is it able to do so. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. The person of the flesh has a life that is characterized by death. It's not just that their life leads to death at some point in the future. Their life is characterized by death even now. And you don't have to look very far to see a culture of death in the world around us. Where we have mothers who are willing to murder their unborn babies in order to make their life better somehow where we have a rise in a belief that somehow suicide is a legitimate solution to the stresses of life. How can this be? Well, this is is the connection that there is between the flesh and death. Death is just a part. It's a a part of the equation in the mind of the flesh that maybe taking someone's life or maybe taking my own life would be a legitimate solution in this situation. And we see that growing and expanding around us. 
In fact, we, we need to remember that this is not just a life that leads to death. It's a life that is characterized even now by death. The outlook of the flesh is death. It gives off the aroma of separation from God that already exists. And you can see it. You can smell it. In fact, we shouldn't miss the very clear and powerful statements that are made in verses 7 and 8, where it says, The outlook of the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Again, he's describing two types of people. He's describing the Christian and the non-Christian. He's describing the person who is in the Spirit versus the person who is in the flesh. And he says the person who is in the flesh simply cannot obey God's law. The flesh cannot obey God's law. More than that, that describes a... An inability or a depravity. But he goes beyond that and he says, Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Those who are in the flesh do not have anything within themselves that they will use or ever could use to please God. It's just not there. So as he's describing these two people, he's making very clear the distinction between those who are in the Spirit and those who are in the flesh. But the outlook of the Spirit is life and peace. The person of the Spirit is characterized by life and peace. That's the the idea of shalom. Acceptance with God, knowing God's favor. Living life under the smile of God. Being at peace with God. Being at peace with life because my life is from God. That characterizes the life of the person who is in the Spirit. And this person is truly alive. And contrary to the the worldview of death, this person sees as part of his mission to preserve life. To bring life. Fourthly, he's describing contrary identities. I've tried to make clear to this point that he is describing, he is not giving exhortation, he's not saying, so you should do this. If you find yourself doing this, if you find yourself with the mind of the flesh, stop that, and instead have the mind of the Spirit. If you find yourself with the lifestyle of the flesh, stop that, and you need to have the lifestyle of the Spirit. I've tried to make clear that that's not what he's doing. Why do I say that? Because of verse 9, where he gives contrasting identities. Verse 9 says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Paul's not exhorting. He's describing, and here, he comes right down to the point, and he makes it clear, Christian, you are in the Spirit, period. You are in the Spirit, Christian, you have the mindset of the Spirit. 
Christian, you have the lifestyle of the Spirit. Christian, you, you exude life and peace from the Spirit. And why do I say that? Why do I make a big point of that? Well, it's because we live life in the flesh. I don't mean in the flesh as in separated from God and governed by a fleshly worldview, but we live life in this body that is still fallen, that still rebels against God. The, the war within ourselves that we talked about last week between the inner man and the flesh. We live in that moment. And so because you live in that moment, let me peek into your brain a little bit. How often do you feel condemnation? How often do you look at your life and you see, I'm just walking in the flesh. I must be in the flesh. How often in your own disobedience do you think, God made a mistake with me. Or maybe I've just deceived myself. There's no way God could want to have anything to do with me. There's, there's no way that God could have saved me if I live such a life. If I think such thoughts. If I do such things. That's where you live. That's where I live. We live in that moment where we cry out with Paul, Who will set me free? Wretched man that I am. Who will set me free from the body of this death? And so he comes down after having described what the, what the outlook is like and what the mindset is like, what the, what the, the behavior is like, what, what exudes from them, what these qualities, after having described all of that, and you read that, and you're not encouraged yet because you're thinking, I'm on the wrong side of the equation. All too often, I see myself on the wrong side of that equation. And when you're doing well, you think, hey, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm in the Spirit. I'm living in the Spirit. I'm walking in the Spirit. I'm thinking in the Spirit. This is great. And then you fall on your face and you think, this is miserable. I'm walking in the flesh. My mind is of the flesh. And so you're bounced back and forth. And you find assurance when you're doing great. And you lack assurance when you're not doing great. See if I can fix that. And so, having given this list, we don't see comfort yet. We saw comfort in verse 1. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But then he starts describing those who are in Christ. And we begin to think, uh-oh. I do not find myself consistently as, consistently as consistently as I would like in the category of the Spirit. How do I know? So he says in verse 9, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. So he's going to give us the clue for how we can identify which side of this we're on. How we can know where we are. He's about to give us the clue. He says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, the category you want to be, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. What does he mean by that? What he means is every Christian, every true Christian, every person who is truly in Christ, every single one, is in the category of the Spirit in this conversation. 
Not in the category of the flesh. The flesh will rear its head. The flesh will so, show itself. It will be at war with us. And sometimes we will follow its lead and go that direction. But Christian, if you are in Christ, if the Spirit of God dwells in you, and the Spirit of God dwells in every Christian, you are in the category of the Spirit in this conversation. And so there's encouragement. There's encouragement there. He's going to say later on in chapter 8 and verse 16... He's going to talk about the fact that the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. There is a way to know, and we're going to go more and more into that. But if you are in Christ, you are in the Spirit, not in the flesh. And so the encouragement that you take from this is very different. It's very different. The Bible in the Old Testament says, A bruised reed, he will not break. You feel like a bruised reed as a Christian? You trust in Christ, you love Him, and you see evidence to the contrary in your flesh. And it kills you. You feel like a bruised reed? Isaiah 42.3 says, A bruised reed, he will not break. And a faintly burning wick, he will not quench. Do you wish you burned brighter? Do you wish your, your faith shone more? Your, your faith is kind of weak and it's flickering and it's small and it's kind of smoldering. And yeah, there's, there's an ember there, but it's not much to look at. A faintly burning wick, he will not quench. He won't put that out. What does our God do? You feel like a bruised reed? I feel like a bruised reed often. I feel like that smoldering wick, like a candle that's about to go out, and there's just a tiny ember. And what does he do? Does he say, you're not burning nearly bright enough, and squish you out? Does he break that reed? No. He works to encourage you, to sustain you, to bolster up that bruised reed, to fan into flame that smoldering wick that is your faith. I praise God for that. Because I read chapter 9 and I say, yeah, I'm a, I'm a Christian. The Spirit of God is within me. The Spirit testifies me, uh, to me that that is the case. I, I see evidence of His work in my life. But when I read through the list that, uh, of, of a description of a person who's in Christ, I'm so often discouraged. And I think, well, I, it's almost like I identify more with the flesh category. I'm a bruised reed and a smoldering wick. And does God look and say, that's not enough. You need to do more. You need to be more. You need to strengthen yourself. Is that what He does? It's not what He does. He fans that gently into flame. He restores that bruised reed to strength. And that's what He does with our faith. And this is why I see this passage as one of the most encouraging passages that there could possibly be 
in the whole Bible. He started off by saying, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And what does he mean by that? He means in Christ you are entirely acceptable to God. Period. But there's more hope even than that. Fifthly, he gives contrasting hopes. Contrasting hopes. For the person who's in the flesh, there's only, there's only death, there's only sin and consequences to look forward to. The unbeliever is already separated from God's relationship and favor. And when he dies, he will be utterly separated from every aspect of God except wrath and judgment. What an, what an awful destiny. His body will be raised from the dead, but only so that he can continue to suffer. The results of his rebellion against God to suffer his death. For the one who is in Christ, though, he has the hope of the resurrection. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Paul had cried out earlier about the body of this death. Who will set me free from the body of this death? And in my inner man, I've been raised to be with Christ. I'm reconciled. I'm alive in Him. But what about this body of death that I carry around that is my enemy? In that day, when we are raised, the redemption that was accomplished for our inner man will be paired with the redemption of our outer being as well. In that day you will not have an enemy who goes with you everywhere to poison everything you do and think. In that day, when you are raised, you will not have that enemy anymore. In that day, you won't have that lurking and nagging temptation to sin. It'll be gone. Entirely gone. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that? A time, a life when you don't have to deal with temptation. You don't have to deal with sin. And that's the resurrection. That's glory. And then finally, in that day, you will love Him unreservedly and without the taint of sinful nature. That would spoil it. We love God now. We love Christ now. But not always very well. And there will come a time when we are raised, when our bodies are made alive again, when we are restored, when we are fully and finally redeemed in our entirety, inner man and outer man. There will come a time when we will love Him as He deserves to be loved, as we want to love Him. And so, how is this chapter encouraging? I find it encouraging in every way. Because when I read down that list, I see myself so often in the wrong category. But I see the statement that God makes that if the Spirit of God dwells in you, you are in the Spirit. And He's going to talk about it. He's going to give the direction as we continue on through chapter 8 of the glory that that's going to turn into. But for our time today, be encouraged by that. You may be a bruised reed. You may be like a garden hose that's had a kink in it and you feel like it's about to tear. You may be a smoldering wick, a candle that's about to go out and it's just sputtering and it's smoking. 
And you and I might put that thing out. And that's not what Jesus does. He fans that faith into flame. He works to strengthen you and to present you to Himself holy and without spot. That's glorious. And that's encouraging. And so, I hope that as we've worked through this, some theology and some passages that we've gone over, I hope that you receive that encouragement. I I hope that you understand, that you read down that list, and and if you recognize, yeah, sometimes I feel like I'm I'm in the Spirit, but then there are times it just seems like I'm in the flesh, and and which one is true, and... Look at, chap- look at chapter 8 and verse 9. Because he says, you who are in Christ are in the Spirit. And you have life. And God is giving you the mindset of the Spirit. He is reforming your life. He will give you the lifestyle of the Spirit. He is working to fan into flame that smoldering wick that may be your faith. Let's pray. Father, I'm a little bit awestruck, dumbfounded in some ways by this passage that you could have such love and wisdom and mercy toward me. That you could have such love and wisdom and mercy towards those who are here. If I were to have to look to my life and find assurance in my life, I would be a wretch and miserable. But I look to Christ. And I find assurance in Christ. I find hope in Him and what He's done. I find that I'm acceptable to you because of what Christ has done. I find that my sin has been forgiven because of what Christ has done. I find that there has been obedience to the law, perfect from the heart obedience to the law in what Christ has done. And because I'm in Christ, it is credited to my account. I find that I have been redeemed in my inner man. And I rejoice that one day I will be redeemed in my outer man as well. Father, I pray that you would encourage those here in the way that I have been encouraged, to the, to the degree and in greater ways than I have been encouraged. May, may my fumbling words not get in the way of their encouragement and joy because of Romans chapter 8. Father, we rejoice in this salvation that you've given us. We pray that you would fan into flame smoldering wicks like us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.